0: Let me add my welcome to you. It's great to see you here. Thanks for coming out. Thanks to the Downings for the wonderful breakfast that my son particularly enjoyed on his second roll and fourth rasher of bacon. That was his second breakfast. He's only two and a half years old. He gets it from his dad. Um, you'll see notes for this session if you want to take them are um, in the third page in the booklet, so do grab that. Um, and there should be pens in the pews. And the way we're gonna do this session is um, I'm gonna speak for about half an hour or so, try and unpack the issue and then there'll be a Q&A towards the end. So I think we're finishing this session at 11.15, uh, sorry. 1:15 1 will be a long one. 11.15, and um, so there we'll have a 15 minutes to 20 minutes at the end of the session for Q&A. So do as we're going through. If there are questions that come to your mind, you'll see there's a little space at the bottom of your sheets to be scribbling some notes in there, and then we'll have a kind of open time at the end to chat it through before we pray it in. Why don't I open up before I speak by praying, and let's bow our heads and let's commit our time to God. Father God, thank you for this morning, for the blessings we've already enjoyed uh, from you, Lord God, the blessings of a new day, a day you've made, a day that you call us to rejoice in and be glad in, and so we offer it back to you, uh, Lord, with thankfulness in our hearts, and we want to understand more this morning and today and tomorrow as we think through this issue of identity, what it means to be people who are made in your image. Lord, we're aware of many competing stories and narratives that are told to us about identity, but we want the true story from your word. So please enlighten our understanding, uh, please excite (coughs) our hearts, and please give us a longing to be obedient in this area as in all areas. And we ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen. Look, as we think through this issue, let me give you some um, examples of where the issue of identity comes out. Um, Let me tell you a bit about Gretel. Gretel is currently sitting in the Caribbean. Uh, She's really a stranger to the Caribbean, even though that's her ethnic heritage. She came across uh, from the Caribbean to the UK when she was nine years old. All of her life she's lived in the UK, but about four years ago, when she was travelling back to the Caribbean to see a few family members there, one of the passport officials asked her if she would hand in her passport for a moment. She did, she didn't receive it back, and in that passport was a very important stamp that gave her indefinite leave to remain in the UK, acknowledging her right to be a UK citizen. She's never got that passport back, and as a result of that, she can no longer travel. But the freedom that she no longer enjoys in terms of travel is just part of the problem, because for her, as she now sits in the Caribbean, feeling very much like a foreigner in a place that she doesn't really call home. All her friends and family are back here in the UK, but she can't get here. But the stamp being taken away from her passport is more than just a lack of freedom. it's really a lack of identity. She feels like without that stamp, she doesn't know who she is anymore. That's Gretel. Let me tell you a bit about Johnny. A few years ago, Johnny was working in the city, very successful, always had a job, came out of university, got a job straight away, to been about nine years in the city, been very successful, had, uh, you know kind of um, climbed the career partner uh, towards um, senior partner um, as a management consultant. And then one day, um, post uh, kind of credit crunch, suddenly he lost his job. Everyone told him, of course, he would get another job, you know, pretty quickly. But the employment market, you know, shifted for the worst. And so, you know, a couple of weeks turned into a couple of months. He applied for things. Initially, he felt pretty upbeat about it. And he thought, no problems. I've got a good CV. I've got a good track record I'll get a job. But he didn't. Two months turned into six months. And one day at church, as I was talking to him, I said, how are you finding all this? He said, you know what? The strangest thing is, without my job I just don't feel like I know who I am anymore. I find myself nervous in social situations. I dread the question about how's the job application process going. I feel like I've lost my identity. And let me tell you lastly about Carla. Uh, Carla loves Facebook. She'll often be the person posting on Facebook. She's good at doing that. But also, Carla doesn't sleep at night. Um, She Normally, the last thing she does before she goes to bed each night is check Facebook. And then she finds herself, you know, kind of scrolling down the status updates. But as she's doing that, she's concerned that she's spending more and more time on Facebook, particularly at night time, you know, 10 o'clock, 10.30, she goes on it. She's often not off it until 1, 1.30, and then as she comes off it, she finds herself like drifting back and compulsively opening it up again and looking again, almost in an addictive type way. She's worried that she might be addicted to Facebook. She um, loves the fact that she's got friends that she can connect with on Facebook. That was initially the reason she got on it. Uh, She enjoys being able to connect with people. But recently she's found that actually she started noticing the number of friends she's got and she's worried when she seems to lose some friends, especially when they don't tell her that they're unfriending her. She posted um, recently showing a new haircut that she'd got and a couple of people wrote back comments that she wasn't sure whether they were nasty comments or whether they were just intended as banter, but it's worked on her for the last week and she's not been sleeping as a result. She's worried what people think of her and her identity. Now, I don't know if you know that um, all of those issues obviously are about identity, but in 2015, the New York Times said that this was the year when we obsessed over our identity. But I don't think it's just been 2015. It has been a late modern problem. Something's been going on for a long time now. And all of those issues that I unpack there are all issues of identity. Here's what the New York Times wrote under the subheading of that 2015 year we obsessed about the identity news piece. It said, headlines and cultural events have confronted us With the malleability of racial, gender, sexual and reputational lines, who do we think we are? The article went to look at some pretty, I suppose you could call them extreme or big issues about identity, things like transhumanism, transracism, for example, it um, picked up on the story of Rachel Dolazal. I don't know if you remember that story. She was the woman who, though ethnically white, had married an Afro-American man and had two mixed-race children, but she had dyed her skin and done her hair to look like an African-American woman, and she claimed she was a trans-race person she had always felt like a black woman in a white woman's body. It kicked off a massive media storm about it. Some lauding her right to choose, after all, why can you not choose who you want to be? That's part of the late modern, um, you know, thing that we can choose whatever we want to be. Others saying, how dare you try to identify with people who have been through the history that they have been through and the race um, relations movement and all of the anti-slavery movement, and to claim that you can suddenly choose to become part of that, you don't know what that's like, that's not part of your heritage. Others said, how incredibly narrow-minded that you were straight a person to constrain her to say she can't be what she wants to be. Might seem extreme, but it lit up the news because it clearly chimed. And issues went on around this, technology and social media, mass migration and the rights of displaced people, when life ends, when life begins, who has the right to end it and who has the right to help it to start. All of these issues are all about human identity, and they crowd our news items. But the reason I didn't start with those big-picture issues is because I don't want you to think that the issue is out there, because the issue isn't out there. Identity is an issue for all of us. We're all working it through. It's an ongoing thing that we're thinking through. And today, there's um, what some people have called the buffered self. We are buffeted around by the winds of people telling us what our identity is and should be and now we need to come back to some solid ground, so that's why we come to Scripture. The philosopher Soren Kierkegaard once said, the greatest hazard of all is losing oneself. It can occur very quietly in the world as if it were nothing at all. No other loss occurs quite so quietly. Any other loss, loss of an arm, a leg, five dollars, or a wife, is sure to be noticed. I imagine it would be noticed, but not the loss of self. So are we losing ourselves? Well, in this context, we're going to start in Genesis 1, where there are rich pickings for us to understand what it means to be fully human. So, let's look down at Genesis 1. I'm sure you've read through Genesis 1 before, but don't worry if you haven't. But as you read through Genesis 1, you get this kind of rhythmic um, repetition as God creates. So, you see on that very first page, verse 3, God said, let there be light. Then verse 6, let there be a vault between the waters to separate water from water. Then verse 9, let the water under the sky be gathered to one place. Then verse 14, let there be lights. And so you get there, let there, let there, let there. And it was so, and it was so, and it was so. God's on the kind of creation steam train doing these amazing things, creating all things out of nothing. And it looks totally relentless until we get to verse 26, and then we got, then God said, let us. You get a change. He's been creating, bang, 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 bang. But when he comes to create humanity on day six, he pauses. He discusses it within the Godhead. Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals. It's as if, as I've sometimes put it, there's a royal pause as God, the majestic creator king, stays for a moment to contemplate the majesty of what he is about to do. It's a little bit like the way that an artist will pause before they unveil their masterpiece. Not out of ego, but out of a right pause and appreciation for the beauty of what is about to be unfurled. And so God pauses before he makes humanity. And in that moment, what are we told? God created mankind, verse 27, in his own image. This is why he's pausing. This is the pinnacle of all creation. Each individual person is made in the image of God. And notice, secondly, in the image of God, He created them, male and female, He created them. So, humanity together in community is also made in the image of God. Individually, every single human being is made in the image of God, and corporately, as we interact together in relationship, we are also imaging God. Now, we've just got to pause for a moment just to take in this, because you can skirt over this at your peril, This has shaped constitutions of nations, it should shape our life today. I don't know if you saw last week that a a family had found a vase in an old shoebox. Um, Apparently the family didn't think much of the vase, it was kind of not quite the colours they liked, it's just a small vase fitted into a, a normal size shoebox, but anyway they decided they wanted to sell it, they took it to an auctioneer. The auctioneer had integrity, he escalated it to Sotheby's because he kind of thought it might be pretty special. Sotheby's got hold of it. Turned out that it was a vase from the Qinglong Long Emperor period in the 1700s in China under the Emperor Qing dynasty. And therefore, with the stamp on the bottom of the vase, it was sold for 14 million pounds. And here's the thing. The vase in and of itself was very beautiful. And it was very old, and it was very lovely, even if they didn't esteem its value. But without that stamp, it would not have been worth 14 million because the stamp gave it the stamp of authenticity, its heritage, it said what it is. With that stamp, it was almost priceless. Friends, we have, as every human being, that stamp on us, the stamp of the king, the stamp of God, that says we are of inestimable value, not in and of ourselves, but conferred on us by being made in the image of a God who is of infinite worth. And nothing else in all creation bears this stamp. No animal, no tree, no rock. We are the pinnacle. But it's not something in and of ourselves. It's given to us as a gift of grace. Now just think of the implication this has. I mean, think of what this means. Every human person, regardless of ethnicity, uh, national status, educational achievement, disability or impairment, gender, state of mental health. Every human being, bar none, in or out of the womb, elderly or young, mobile or immobile, bears the image of God. Every human being is a person of inestimable worth and value, regardless of whether they can economically contribute or not. Our worth is not pinned down to what we do or where we're from or how we've been educated, or what color our skin is, or what gender we are, our worth is nailed down to God and what he's done for us in giving us that. Now, some implications we've got to think about. This led to the end of slavery. When the Reformers really got this, the um, people in the Clapham sect, people like Wilberforce and his ilk, when they got this and they really thought it through, this was the end of slavery. In fact, the seedbed for the end of slavery was always laid in the Bible based on this view but it should also lead to us campaigning today, not just for the end of the transatlantic slave trade, which gloriously has ended, but the end of the modern slavery movement, which is going on and which seems in number to dwarf the horrors and evil of the transatlantic slave trade. Every human being is made in the image of God. This should lead to the end of racism and the end of this ugly thing that is happening where we shun displaced peoples because we become so economically selfish. Every human being, regardless of whether they have a home or not, regardless whether they are displaced or not, is made in the image of God. They are not a threat. They're a person made in the image of God. How we need to rediscover this today. Gender equality, male and female, he created them in the image of God. Have you ever wondered why Jesus Christ was so progressive in the way he treated women, giving them a, a status and a value that was not conferred on them in their society at the time? Have you ever wondered why the Apostle Paul, would refer to women first in his letters before he would refer to men many times, when in traditional society like that you wouldn't even refer to women in a letter. He was not a misogynist, far from it, that's just naive. He was so progressive. All the apostles were, because the foundations are laid in Genesis chapter 1. Every person, male and female, made in the image of God. The dignity of children Many of the Clapham sect in the 19th century, those social reformers, saw the way that children were being treated, particularly children from the working class, and being stuffed up chimneys at age nine and being stuffed into factories to produce um, you know, goods, was just an affront to the dignity of human nature. And so they campaigned and they reformed. It was Christianity that drove that. And so today, we need to campaign and reform our view of children in the womb. They are made in the image of God the image of God is conferred on every human being, regardless of how old. From the moment of conception, Scripture is clear, they're made in the image of God. And if the church does not champion this graciously and firmly, I don't know who will. Of course women have the right to choose. Women are made in the image of God too. There's no patriarchy here. But there are competing rights when you've got a child in the womb as well. They both are made in the image of God, and that needs to be worked out. If we don't say that, who will say that? The dignity of the elderly, can I say, a ministry to the elderly is never going to be particularly strategic for a church, or maybe not particularly sexy for a church, but it is vital in an age where the elderly are increasingly seen as a burden on society, rather than people to be loved and cherished and honoured for their service to society. So many implications we could work out, hopefully you're thinking them through. Made in the image of God. Well, let's think now what this means to be made in the image of God. Secondly, it means that we are made to worship. Being made in the image of God means we are made to worship. Technically, we'll call this homo adorans, if you want the technical phrase. Homo, a person, adorans, to adore, to worship. People made to worship. And in the text, you might say, well, I don't see worship here. And the thing with that is that it's so much saturating the text that it's one of those issues where you're going to miss it for planes for hiding in plain sight, if you're not careful. Notice how everything in the text is done in relationship to God. So verse 26, God creates humanity. Verse 28, God blesses humanity. God blessed them and said to them. Verse 28, God assigns roles to humanity of being fruitful and increasing, filling the earth and subduing it. Verse 29, God gives food to humanity. Chapter 2, verse 3, God gives rest to humanity. Chapter 2, verse 9, God gives beauty and aesthetics to humanity. Chapter 2, verse 16, God provides moral boundaries to humanity. Everything in the text is from God to people, from God to humanity. Everything is done in relationship to Him and with Him. And therefore, it is no surprise that the fundamental and primary orientation of the human heart is towards God we receive everything from Him. Our identity, our blessings, our moral boundaries, our understanding of the world, the way we relate to one another, our roles in the world, it is all conferred on us and given to us as a blessing, and the movement is from God to us. It's all from Him. We haven't done anything ourselves. It's all from Him. So, where is worship in the text? All over the text, you can't read this outside of the context of worship. It makes no sense outside of the context of worship, because as we receive the blessings from God, the only proper response is to adore Him, to make Him the all and everything. He is at the center of the text in every sense, and therefore He should be at the center of our lives. Flick forward to Deuteronomy chapter 6. Just um, come forward a little bit, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy chapter 6, just to really pin this down, that this is very much the Old Testament understanding. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4, on page 185. This is known as the Shema, one of the greatest confessions of faith in the Old Testament, and one of the greatest calls of what it means to be a human being. Deuteronomy 6, verse 4 Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. And Jesus, when he reads this scripture, adds in and with all your mind. So this is what it means to be human because God is one, one God, Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. He calls us to love him with all of ourselves, every aspect of what it means to be human, heart, the affections, the orientation of our desires, soul, that spiritual part of us, strength, the will, that acts in obedience and that moves forward into the world in humble obedience to God, and mind, as Jesus adds, to think through and to understand God and who He is and rejoice in Him. All aspects of ourselves and our lives are to be given to God in love. How we are to love? With everything that we have. The intensity of that love. And this is why we're here. You want to know? what the great purpose of being a human being is, that's it. To worship God, to love Him, to live in orientation to Him in all things, that's what it is. The Westminster Catechism, a catechism is a series of questions and answers, it's a bit of an old thing now where you would catechize someone, but it's a good thing to do, particularly when you're learning with children, you ask them a question, they give you the response. The first part of the Westminster Catechism was what is the chief end of man? Good question. What are we here for? The chief end of man? Excuse the um, male first vernacular. The chief end of people? To glorify God and enjoy Him forever. All of life lived in orientation for God. That is what we are here for. Worship. We are made to worship. And notice as we come back to Genesis now, how it saturates everything we do, our work in the fullest sense of the word our family, as we're told, to increase in number, our food that God gives us, aesthetics as we enjoy art and beauty and music, our morality as God gives moral boundaries, they're all framed in worship. So, worship is not just a religious activity. In Genesis, there is no kind of religious divide, no sacred-secular divide, and indeed, there never has been in Genesis, it's all about living relationship to God in all aspects of life with all we are. It's all about worship. Worship is totally integrated into everything. There's not a, a single part of human life and activity and endeavor and thought and emotion that is not governed by worship. Worship has never been just Sundays, worship has always been all of life. The problem is we forgot that, but it's crystal clear in Genesis. You know, lots is made today of us being a secular society. Um, we're, of course, not a secular society because everything is under God's authority, and so therefore that trumps secularism, whatever people may call it. But secularism has this big move to say that the fundamental nature of humanity is not homo adorans, made to worship, but is something else, which is why we hear so much about homo sapiens we are made to know, to be wise. That is not our first orientation secularism is very wrong. Actually, secularism is massively in the minority in history and in the globe today. It's just a peculiar Western quirk. But we must push back on it. No, I am made to worship, and therefore I'm not a secular human being. My fundamental orientation is to worship God. The second move of secularism is to say, okay, well, if you're going to worship, just do it on one day a week in your particular private sphere. Don't bring it into the public sphere. But that, again, is an error, because from the beginning, Genesis 1 said, worship is all of life, and that's the other pushback on secularism. I am a worshipping being, and you know what? I'm bringing my worship into work, because how can I not? I'm bringing my worship into every public sphere, because that is the way that God has made me. We are wired to worship in all aspects of life. Made to worship. Third point, how do we worship? Well, we worship through what we know. Notice that as we're made in the image of God and made to worship, there are certain key areas where that worship is manifested. The first one to look at is in our knowing. Again, you might miss it if you don't look carefully, but though we are primarily Homo Adorans, people made to worship, secondarily under that we are Homo sapiens, people who know as we worship. So a manifestation of our worship is in how we know and make sense of the world and God and who we are. So, do you see how, as God creates, how He creates? I mean, this is completely different to any other creation mythology of the ancient Near East when this was written. God creates by speaking. He speaks the cosmos into existence. Ten times we get the phrase, and God said it. Verse 3, verse 6, verse 9, verse 11, verse 14, I could go on. Five times after God creates things, we get God called. So, chapter 1, verse 5, God called the light day. He's naming things, and the darkness He called night. Chapter 1, verse 8, God called the vault sky. He names things. Chapter 1, verse 10, it comes up twice again. God called the dry ground land, and He gathered waters. He called seas. So, God speaks things into being, then God names things, and then we also get that God sees things and appreciates things. What's going on here? Do you see how God is knowing his creation. He's speaking his creation into being. He's then naming his creation and he's then appreciating his creation. This is all about knowing. God is a knowing God. He's a speaking God and his speaking is fundamentally part of his knowing. And so to be made in the image of God is, guess what? To be knowing people, people who know. But here's the crucial move as God speaks and as God knows, He also communicates that to us, so that shapes our knowing. So our knowing is not independent from God, it's always given to us and revealed to us by God. Being made in the image of God who is a speaking God, but fundamentally a knowing God. One of Rebecca's good friends works with severely mentally impaired children who lack the ability to speak, and it was fascinating when I was talking to her a few years ago about this, I was saying, you know, What's it like to work with them? And she said, Well, you know, wonderfully, with technology now, we can actually give them a voice through their ability to manipulate a mouse um, on a keyboard, you know, with their eye, and then to blink to kind of press a letter. And that allows them to be able to form a word. She said that one of her children she was working with had taken a week to form a sentence. And um, she said she just burst into tears when that first sentence was said by this child but she said it's fascinating because the way that speaking works is it gives voice to the inner life of the child, but also it forms the inner life of the child. It's a two-way thing. So much of our mental development, our knowing, is about our speaking. Our words shape our thoughts as well as giving voice to our thoughts. So to be made in the image of a speaking God is to be a knowing human being, to know things, to see things, to appreciate things, to be able to frame reality. That's what God does. And that's why there's this strange incident with um, Adam where he has to name things in Genesis chapter 2 verse 19. Just look down with me. Now, the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the wild animals and all the birds in the sky. He brought them to man to see what he would name them. God has named creation, but he now gives Adam the opportunity to name some aspects of creation because man is made in the image of a knowing God and naming is part of knowing. And so, Adam is naming. You're thinking, this is just a bit bizarre. Why is this? Oh, don't underestimate the power of knowing and naming, right? Imagine I walk home, and I come in at home, and I've had a difficult day at work, and I see toys everywhere all over the front room. It's often like that, and Oliver's playing around. And what if I walk in, and I name that mess? In my head, I go, this is mess. How will that shape my interaction? I will not play with Oliver, I'll run around trying to tidy it up. I'll look at Rebecca with a kind of glare that says, why haven't you tidied this up? But what if there's a different interaction? As I walk into the room, I name this home, play, creativity, joy. I get down on the floor and I start playing with Oliver. I look at Rebecca and I say, how's your day been? This is wonderful. Look at the way you're helping to foster his creativity. I give thanks to God in my heart. You see the power of naming? Name something wrongly. It all goes wrong. Name something right. And of course, there is a true name for everything. God has given a true name. God has revealed and shaped and formed creation and named it. And so, we therefore need to work with the knowing and the naming and the words that God has given us. To put it another way, there is a story that can be told for everything. The big question is, are you telling the true story, God's story, His story, or are you making up your own lesser distorted story? Because we're great storytellers. Well, Mark and I often quote and paraphrase um, Archbishop Cranmer from the uh, 16th century who said, what the heart wants, the will chooses, and the intellect justifies. Our heart wants something, we then choose it, and then we justify it. And the way we justify it is with our brilliant storytelling. Have you ever noticed how no one is ever the villain in their own story? But there are real villains in the world, aren't they? And actually, in your own heart, there is aspects of that that is villainy, that is sin, but no one's the villain in their own story. Why? Because they're such good storytellers. The true story is revealed and given by God, and we need to live under that true story, that I am not here as an independent person, that I am not a self-made man or woman, that everything is given to me as a gift of God. That's the true story, the story of blessing and enjoyment. We are made to worship through what we know, and God gives that knowing to us as a gift of revelation. And so we need to conform our stories to the true story. And we need to watch out in the world today for lots of false stories that, though they're very compelling, they are distorted. And can I say, if you read on to Genesis chapter three, that has always been the case. There will be a compelling, false, alternative story put in front of humanity. And if we believe that story, rather than believe in the true story that God gives us, then we really do bring sin into the world. So we worship through what we know, as we're made in the image of God. And lastly, we worship through what we do. We've recently, um, at, uh, in Sparta and James, had a man called Dave Evans with us. He g- gave the Design Your Life um, event um, during the Week on the Green series of events. And um, he came in and spoke to the staff, and we also got a few people together thinking about this whole issue of how we integrate work and faith, and faith and work together. Dave tells the story of um, when he was 18 as a young man, he said he didn't need to kind of anyone to confirm this for him, it was just so obvious, that he said two truths came to him one day. He said, first of all, that being made in the image of God, he is of inestimable value. Every human being is. Secondly, that as you look around the world, human beings spend the vast majority of their waking time working. Therefore, if God has made the world and put us in the world as those made in his image and of great value, and we spend all this time working, ergo, work must be really, 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 really important to God, right? he said he didn't need to read the Bible to get that, that's just obvious. And then he said he went to his church and to his elders and he said, so work's got to be really important, so tell me what's the Christian view of work? And to use his phrase, he said they just gave horrible, horrible answers. (laughs) He said he just asked and asked and asked and no one could tell him. Our friends, one of the great problems has been that we have stopped seeing how our work is an integral part of our faith and how we worship through our work rather than worshipping our work, which is what so much of late modernity is about. But being made in the image of God is to be homo faber, the one who makes or the one who works, the person who makes or the person who works. God works. I wonder if that surprised you. Genesis chapter 2 verse 2, by the seventh day God had finished the work he had been doing. God had been working. God worked in creation. If you read on in the Bible, you'll see that God works in sustaining His creation. He sustains all things by the word of His power. So, God works in creation. God works in sustaining His creation. God works in revelation. God works in salvation. God is a working God. So, guess what? To be made in the image of God is to be made as workers, as makers, as doers, as those who fabricate and innovate and create. We have huge... um, capacity to do things and to move forward into the world and to do work. When God says in Genesis chapter 1, verse 28, to be fruitful and increase in number, the be fruitful part means to work. Just um, flip across one final cross-reference before we draw to a close. Genesis chapter 4. People often get this wrong. So, Genesis chapter 4, we have the first city. And if you look at Genesis chapter 4, Verse 20 on page 7. In the context of the first city, what happens? Well, we get all these names that sound Abali. Look, let's read with me at verse 20. Ada gave birth to Jabal. He was the father of those who live in tents and raise livestock. His brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of all who play stringed instruments and pipes. Zillah also had a son, Tubal Cain, who forged all kinds of tools out of bronze iron. Tubal Cain's sister was Nama. Now, why all the Abal names? It wasn't just a fad going around. In Hebrew, the word for fruit is abal. So, when you see be fruitful, then when you see these abal names, these are all fruitful names. And what are these fruitful names doing? Well, we've got Jabal. He's the father of those who live in tents and livestock. So, that's architecture and the economy, right, in the context of the city. Then his brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of all play strings and instruments. This is the arts and music. Zilla also had son Tubal, who forged all kinds of tools. This is technology. So what is being fruitful all about? Being fruitful is about pushing into the world and innovating the economy, architecture, the arts, music, creativity, technology. It's all the human endeavor as we make and create and culture is formed. That is what it means to be fruitful. And we work and we make and we innovate because we are made in the image of a God who works and creates. It's what it means to be human. So as we worship God made in his image, so we are beings who know, and so we are beings who make and work. That's what it means to be human. And notice that work is a sphere of worship. Please hear me, you don't need to take your Christianity and your faith into work. It is already there. That's the way God created the world. You don't need to you are not the one who brings God into your work as though you're kind of ushering in the king. He's already there. He made it. It's his idea. When someone is a tech entrepreneur and they're innovating, God is the greatest innovator and creator of all. They're just being made in the image of God. God is already there. When someone is doing the washing up, God is the one who first worked. They're already there. God's already there. When a parent is bringing up the child and working at that, God is the one who is already there. You don't need to bring God into your parenting. He's there. Just recognize him being there and work with what he's doing there. We are made in the image of God, we worship God, and as we worship, we know, and as we know, so we do. You know, work can be very frustrating, this side of the fall, but I often wonder if we have misunderstood the great blessing of work. In Wales, when Thatcher closed down some of the the mines, and so whole mining towns no longer had work to do, you know what, the communities just curled up their toes and died. Because without work, a huge part of humanity and what it means to be a human being was suddenly gone. Look, I know work can be frustrating, but work is unbelievably dignified as well. Aren't there moments in your work when you go, yes, this is good? I don't know, maybe you're singing and you say, this is good. Maybe you're doing a painting and you say, it's not bad. Maybe you're working and you land a deal. Maybe you're sweeping the streets and you look back with satisfaction and you say, this is good. Yeah, I'm sweating, and it's a bit hard work, but it's good still. It's good. Made in the image of God. who's a working God. It's good. So, first and foremost, as I close, we are people who worship. Then under that, we are people who know, and then under that, we are people who work or make. Let me give you a quote from a guy called Alexander Schmemann. It might baffle you a little bit, so I'll try to explain it. This is what he says, "'Man alone is to respond to God's blessing with his blessing.'" In the Bible, to bless God is not just a religious act, but the very way of life. All rational spiritual qualities and other qualities of people, distinguishing him from other creatures, have their focus and their fulfillment in this capacity to bless God, to know, so to speak, the meaning of the thirst and hunger that constitutes his life. That is worship. Homo sapiens? Homo faber? Yes. But first of all, homo adorans. The first and basic definition of man is that he is the one who stands at the center of the world and unifies it in an act of blessing God, receiving the world from God, offering it back to God as an offering and a blessing. What is he saying? He's basically saying we are made to worship. It's foundational to who we are, and everything else comes into focus if you get that right. So as I draw things to a close, let me revisit those three people that we talked about at the beginning. Gretel, what would you say to her sitting in the Caribbean? No stamp on her passport, she can't travel. You'd want to say to her, Gretel, your worth is not determined by the stamp on the passport, but is determined by the imprint on your soul to be made in the image of God. Yes, it is awful, and affront to justice, what you are going through, but be comforted in the midst of that. You are made in the image of God, regardless of whether you can travel or not. You have his... Print on your passport. That's the one that really matters. You can be a citizen of heaven. Don't you think that would help? That would start to put things in perspective? Think of Johnny who's lost his job. Rather than just giving him the platitudes of you'll get another job, he might not for a long time. Say to him, Johnny, can I pray with you? Because maybe what God is doing through this is reorienting you from the fact that you've been worshipping your work and find your identity in work. To find your identity and worship in Him. And maybe this could be a great period for you to really land that. So that as you eventually enter back into the workplace, you can receive it as a blessing from God and you can offer it back to Him but not be defined by it. Let's pray about that. What a time of fruitfulness that could be. In fact, that's exactly what happened with Johnny. He's now back in a job. And he says that, that was the most formative time in his Christian life because he hadn't realized how he's defining himself according to his work and now he's got it back in perspective. Or well, then think of Carla and her addiction to Facebook, what would you want to say to her? Carla, you are not defined by how many friends you have on Facebook, real or virtual, or how many likes you get on your post. And you know what? You don't need to worry about projecting your image out there on social media, trying to get affirmation, because your value is not determined by the affirmation you receive from your friends or your social network. It is given to you as a person made in the image of God. He looks at you, he says, you are beautiful, you are a child of mine, I love you and therefore, I've given you everything. So, you don't need to spend quite so long on Facebook. Maybe you want to get rid of that habit of what, looking at it last thing at night. Think about me last thing at night. You'll sleep a lot better. You see how it makes a difference? To be made in the image of God. Well, let me lead us in a prayer. Heavenly Father, we crave your forgiveness for the way that we individually and also corporally define ourselves by lesser things and rather than by who you have made us to be, what a thing it is to be made in the image of the infinitely valuable God. Help us to get a real sense of what it means to live this out in our lives as those who worship and as we worship under that as those who know and those who work and make and do. Lord, help us get this in perspective and to work out the full implications of this for our lives. We ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen. So we've got about 15 minutes now. Um, Why don't you turn to the person next to you just for a moment, and any questions that you wrote down or any questions you're thinking about now, then just buzz for a moment. It will get us talking, and then we're going to do a roving mic and take questions from the floor um, for the next 15 minutes or so. So chat to the person next to you for a minute. Okay, Jono's going to do roving mic, so let's gather some questions. Over to you any questions on this or even any reflections as you're working it through, but questions to clarify because this might be confusing or I might not have been clear, so anything from the floor. I'll open it up. Does Does to bless God mean the same thing as to worship God? Thanks, Barnaby, really helpful. I think um, blessing God is an act of worshiping God. So, um, in the Old Testament, there's, um, there's really two big classes of kind of sacrifices and offerings in the temple. Uh, one is uh, one that we bring to God as the one that He's required from us, so that's the sin offerings, and there's various different um, types of sin offerings that are offered on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, for example, the offering of the scapegoat and the bull as well. So these are offerings from God, and they're atoning sins, ones that make us right with God. But there's also, in the Old Testament, freewill offerings, um, offerings and thanksgiving offerings that we bring to God, and we often forget those. And so that's the sacrifice of blessing. So we receive from God his blessing in creation and also in salvation, and then we offer back to God the blessing of our lives. And I think A key aspect to God is that movement of offering and that movement of blessing. I don't think it's the only aspect of worship, but it's certainly a a really key one. And so we'll see later on in these talk series, Romans chapter 12, this view to offer your whole lives. Now the the sacrifice is a living one. It's the one of your whole life. It's not just grain and grape, but now it's actually bringing your whole life to God. So yeah, this act of blessing is a a key big part of worship, but I don't think it's the whole shaboodle is a technical term. Pete, I wondered if you could speak a little bit more on the relationship between um, worshipping and knowing. So just trying to, just trying to understand... So s- say I want to set out to understand something so I want to understand how a benefit system should be designed, for example. How, how should, as I go to seek to know that, how should the fact that I'm trying to hold that knowing under... Or what, like I guess kind of practically, what does that look like? Should I, yeah, how really do helpful. I... Thank you. Uh, big question. So how, yeah, how, do we, how does knowing and um, worshipping link... I think there are, one certainly is, like, what has God revealed about that in his revealed word? That is certainly going to be helpful. So there are certain foundational things, and sometimes it's just getting the big story. So why is it that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and the beginning of knowledge? So the two times that it's quoted, is the beginning of wisdom and the beginning of knowledge. Well, the fear of the Lord, because it's basically saying, unless you get the big picture, you're a bit like a football player who, whilst you might technically be able to kick the ball, you haven't worked out that you're trying to get it in the goal. So you could play really intricate football but you're kind of missing the point of the game. And so you're saying, unless you get that everything in life, economy, music, arts, is all about glorifying God and being oriented to him in worship, you're kind of missing the point. But of course, you could still be really good, technically, at kicking the ball, even if you don't get it in the goal, you're just kind of missing the point of it. So that big picture narrative is one. Then there'll be the question of, has God revealed anything about the, the doing activity, the knowing activity of how to kick a ball? And like, he hasn't given us anything about how to kick football, but there might be certain economical principles, economics principles, which we do find in the Old Testament and which we can work out. Um, And then it's worth saying that the final thing is there's general revelation. You know, it's a special revelation of scripture where he's revealed things to us, but then it's understanding that all of truth in the world is from God as well. And just sometimes even getting that and understanding that, that as, for example, you work out an economic principle that isn't derived from scripture, but is just true and works you give glory to God and say that is part of your truth. So I think there's threefold ways of knowing. There's the the backdrop issue of knowing under God. There's special revelation that shapes um, our knowing. And then there's general revelation that we have of our knowing, which just recognizing that is from God and to give thanks and glorify him in that. But as you know, there's a big thing there. Jo has thought a lot about this. She's about to put her hand up, but she's thought a lot about this with regards to psychology. And so it's helpful linking in with Jo a bit because she's working this out practically in one area. Was your hand about to go up as well? Did I just call you out? Yeah, please do. Please do. Oh, yeah. Um, Pete, you mentioned uh, Genesis 128. Uh, God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Yeah. And pointed to being fruitful uh, primarily about working and uh, cross-referencing Genesis 4. Could you speak a little bit about the increasing in number bit? Um, Thank you. And I suppose in my mind I'm thinking about childbearing not just because we have four children, but that we live in a society where the number of children that people have is going down. We're now an average one child per family. Yes. At the same time being aware that there are people who would love to have children who can't. And I suppose just what's God's view of of childbearing and the value or Yeah, I skipped that out because we didn't have time, but not because it's not important. So I was giving some illustrations about family, but you're right. thanks for highlighting it because it gives me the opportunity to talk about it. So, yeah, part of the so called creation mandate um, of being fruitful and then increasing number has got those two parts to it, and it's restated in fill the earth. So, fill the earth is the increase in number, and then subdue it and rule over it is the be fruitful bit. So, God's intention is because we are made in the image of God, He wants His image his glorious image to fill creation and of course as we go forward all the way to revelation we get that the um, the glory of god will cover the earth as the water covers the seas so actually it will fill all of creation now one of the key ways that we do that is by having children and raising children to know god of course every child regardless of whether they know god or not bear god's image but that image as mark is going to unpack for us later on today is marred by sin and so therefore raising children who um, come to know and love the Lord Jesus Christ is a way that we both fill the earth and also fill it with God's image. So the dignity of being a parent who raises children and who labors and prays that they would come to know the Lord is an incredibly important thing because you're fulfilling part of the great creation mandate. It's not the only way we fulfill the creation mandate now because of course the act of mission and evangelism and sanctification in the church is also a way that we are growing the image of God in one another and in people, but it is the primary way that is set out with that. So it's a hugely important part of what it means to worship God. And I think one of the, practically, let me just speak practically for a moment, one of the things that I think really makes a huge difference is rather than necessarily pushing your children for a conversion decision, but teaching them to understand that all of life is under God. The awe and the wonder of worshipping God is a key thing that if a child gets that from early on, then your prayer is that they will always know and love God. They will always worship God because they see how integrated it is. Um, And so bringing them up according to the knowledge of the Lord so that the works of their hands in all aspects of life are under the Lord is going to be a hugely important thing for parenting. Um, So yeah. Mel. Yeah, so um, my question is... In verse 28, um, it clearly says um, that we are empowered to rule over God's creation and also um, by the fact that God created us in his image. There's yeah. a sense of empowerment. So my question is that, you know, obviously people, Christian or not, they're all empowered, but then you know, with the fall, um, there has been obviously an abuse of power in many different spheres and areas, yes. and you know, people being manipulative, um, and I'm just wondering how can we best address that in a godly way when this kind of like false story is promoted? That's a really helpful question, thanks Mel yeah so um uh, there's it's interesting so in w- w- um genesis one twenty eight we get fill the earth and subdue it, and that subdue word is um is quite a it's quite a hard word in some senses. It means to kind of yield the benefit from something. The image is a bit like squeezing grapes and getting juice out of it. So, we are to yield the benefit, and this is the kind of foundation of, I suppose, a Christian capitalism. But also, we get later on that the Lord God puts um, Adam and Eve in the garden, uh, verse 15, to work it and take care of it, and the take care of it is a shepherding word. And see the wonderful balance here to how we're to um, how we are to kind of rule and exercise dominion over the creation, we are both to yield its benefit, to kind of milk it, milk the cow, get the grapes, you know, get the juice out of the grapes, and we do that, and that's a good thing, that's the way God gives his blessing of material blessing to us, but we're also to steward it and take care of it, and recognize that God has um, given, us it, it, uh, given it to us as stewards, but it's his And we will have to give an account for how we look after it. And so I think that is the wonderfully balanced view that we should have, is the authority we have is for those two ends. And of course, you can see the dangers that we slipped into, and particularly in a kind of capitalist mindset, as we've lost that sense of this creation as a gift to be received from God. We've just gone after, let's just milk it for all it's worth. And we've lost that view of taking care of it. It's worth saying that this is the foundation of a proper Christian ecology as well, that we are stewards and therefore, Christians should really care, because if God's created it, and God's redeemed it, and this world is going to be the world that is, will, will be made new in the new creation, then this world is of huge value. And so we are entrusted with it as stewards, and we'll have to give an account. So I think we should be proactive about giving a Christian view of ecology, which is not saying what you often hear, which is the kind of Gaian hypothesis, that basically we're on spaceship earth, and if we ruin our spaceship, then you know, we'll have nowhere else to live. That's just very utilitarian, right? It doesn't say the spaceship is actually valuable, except that it does something for me. It's just basically just instrumentalism. No, we say this is intrinsically valuable, given by God. That's why we look after it. So the reason I don't chuck litter around is not because I don't want to walk around in a spaceship with lots of litter, but it's because actually it's valuable, and I'm called to look after it, and God's given it as a gift, and I offer it back to God as a blessing. That's Christian ecology. Thanks, Mark. Great question. One more, and then we're going to wrap up with um, prayer. Uh, Johnny, you choose. (laughs) There you are. (laughs) Closest, (laughs) Jessamine. (laughs) Sorry, Um, Alto. Sorry. Could you say a bit more about um, how we think about the centrality of work for people who cannot work, either because of disability or sickness or lack of employment opportunities where they live? Great question. Thank you. Yeah, I think that's one of the things where it's really helpful, seeing work as big picture work and not just um, um, pairing, not that you are, but sometimes we pair down to work to be economic activity that gives me a financial kind of benefit. So, you know, work, some of the examples I used, work can be um, writing a poem, um, work can be making your bed, work can be raising children, work can be doing the washing up, work can be um, being a venture capitalist, work can be innovating a new technology um, app, you know, work is the full range of human endeavor, and you see the dignity that that gives to work now in the broadest sense. So even if you have someone who is severely impaired or had retired and couldn't work, I think that's part of the problem. So much has been loaded into the economic activity of work that therefore we don't see the holistic integration. So when you retire, it's not like you just cease to have meaning and value, right? A, because you made the image of God, but also there's loads of other good work that God has still prepared in advance for you to walk in. So one of the key things we need to help people do in the church is say, as you retire, what are those good works that you are going to continue to walk in? Maybe the idolatry of leisure um, in our retirement is part of the problem, actually. If work is a good part of what it means to be made in the image of God, then actually keeping on working, even when we retire, is a wonderful thing. So what's that work going to look like in the service of God and in the service of his kingdom? So yeah, I think once you do that, then that gives renewed dignity to people, and again, you know, Paul is really good in 2 Thessalonians, isn't he, where he says, if any person will not work, let them not eat. And therefore, even if people are unemployed, I think we need to be sure that as a church community as well, and in community, we're helping them to work in some ways. What can they do? You know, maybe it's the work of applying for lots of jobs, and we want to support them and pray for them and that. But even in the midst of that, maybe it's they say, I've got a bit more free time for, uh, for now. How can I help? I mean, sorry, Tom, to embarrass you, but Tom Harris, you know, resigned from his job to be taking up other jobs, and in the time that he had on his gardening leave, came to the church and said, "There's a few things I'd like to do," and so he organised our prayer 24/7, you know, 24 hours that we had of prayer, which was just great. And he came and said, "I've got free time. How can I work?" It's a wonderful blessing to the church when we get people saying that. So things like that, you know, I think could be really helpful. Sorry to embarrass you, Tom. (laughs) Great. Thanks for your question. Let's keep the discussions going. We've got coffee and tea Now, I'm going to pray, and then I'm going to hand back to Judith for logistics, or yeah, if Judith will give some quick logistics. Let's pray. Father, thanks for all that we've thought about. Let's keep this conversation going. We pray, Lord, help us to discuss this with one another, to work out the full implications of this Lord God, and as we do so, would we be mindful that we are made in your image, and so as we do it, would we do it as an act of worship to you? We ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen.